Let's get right to it. Back in the early 1990s, I was given some free advice by an elderly man after a Sunday evening service. The pastor had preached a sermon on salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It was a good sermon. And, and he talked extensively in the sermon about grace and, and how God extends that to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was really powerful. And then at the end of the sermon, um, I'm stopped from exiting the sanctuary before this elderly man gave me some free advice. Now, it was in the fall, and my son's Pop Warner football season had just entered, and there was a metro-wide event for the players and their families at an outdoor venue in Phoenix. So it was Phoenix in the fall, it's still warm. And I wore cargo shorts and a polo shirt, okay, to this outdoor event. And, and the whole family had a blast. It was a really good thing, good ending to, to the Pop Warner football season. And, and we just had time to go straight from the football celebration to church that evening. And I sang on the worship team from the platform, wearing my cargo shorts and polo shirt. And after the service, and the good sermon on grace, this elderly gentleman stepped in front of me as I was leaving the sanctuary to stop the progress. And he let me know that he had a friend. And if that friend had been there that night, he would have been turned off by the way I was dressed. And that I was on a platform like that. It was a very different message than the one I had just heard from the pastor. Now, I think that this man that said that to me, I know he believed in grace. But he also, for him, there were rules that he had. And he expected that others, like me, would be following his rules too. So with this in mind, here's the question I want you to consider today. If we are saved by grace, then what are all these commands for? If we're saved by grace, what then is the purpose of God's law? If we're saved by grace alone, can we go on living however we choose? So we're five weeks into our journey through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to apologize that we weren't able to record last week's sermon. We're in the middle of an HVAC project and there's ductwork being put in in the attic and other places, new AC units being set outside the building, electrical work being done. And there are cables that run from the speakers and, and the screens up here through the attic and down the wall back there to the equipment in the booth. And the workers had unplugged those to, because it made it unsafe for them to, to walk where they needed to in the attic. And um, they either tripped over and unplugged it accidentally or unplugged it and didn't think at the end of the week about plugging it back in. So we didn't figure that out until like a few minutes before the sermon. So uh, before the service. So we didn't have words with the music last week and, and uh, we weren't able to record the sermon. And so I, I want you guys to know that are here today uh, that we really laid a lot of groundwork for today's sermon. 
last week's sermon. So if you're here today and you weren't here last week, you're in retreat or whatever, or you're visiting today, um, you can see me after the service, and very quickly I can print out my sermon notes from last week's sermon, and you can see the background to today's sermon, and I would encourage you to do that if, if that applies to you. So, today's sermon is entitled, How to Read the Bible Like Jesus, Part 2, as Part 1 was last week. Understanding God's Commands. Last week... Jesus addressed an accusation that some of the religious leaders of his time were making about him. They were accusing him of trying to abolish the law, to throw, to throw out the law or minimize the importance of their scriptures. That's all they had. You know, what we call the Old Testament, that was their scriptures. And they're saying he's trying to abolish his stuff. It's like he was taking their Bible, what we would think of today as their Bible, and tossing it out. Um... Jesus was going around telling prostitutes and lepers and drunkards and tax collectors and all these people who have broken the law of Moses that they could enter the kingdom of heaven if only they had faith in him. Now, the religious leaders were concerned about this. If you say that these people are accepted by God, it'll be anarchy. If you tell people that they are saved by grace, people are going to think that they can live however they want. But today, in, the, in our study of this passage, Jesus will tell us how to understand the relationship between grace and law, between the love of Jesus and the commands of Jesus. Now, last week we talked about how Jesus relates to the scriptures, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. And here's just one example. In the Old Testament, when a person that was ceremonially clean touched something or someone that was unclean, the clean person became unclean as well and then had to offer sacrifices and go through a cleansing ritual to be restored to ceremonial cleanliness. Does that make sense? Maybe. Well, before God, we're all sinners. We are all spiritually unclean. But when an unclean person, like the example from last week was the woman with an issue of blood. Now, when, when the woman had an issue of blood, in the old, according to the Old Testament law, she was unclean. They had to be separate. had to go through a, a ritual purification process afterwards. This woman had been had had an issue of blood from a medical condition for seven years. Okay? And she comes, Jesus comes to town, and she comes and touches him. And guess what happens? Jesus, the clean one, does not become unclean. The unclean one that touches Jesus becomes clean. Why? Because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. He lived his life absolutely sinless. This is amazing, man. This is some good news. So now, when the unclean person comes to Jesus, the change that occurs is that the unclean is made clean in him. It's never happened like this before. So this week, we should see, we, 
we should see how we should relate to the scriptures. Jesus doesn't want us to choose between law and grace. He doesn't want us to choose like it's one or the other. Jesus wants us to understand the law through the lens of grace that's given to us in him. So with that in mind, let's read the Gospel of Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17 and read through verse 26. Do not, these are the words of Jesus, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Word of the Lord. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 26. I want you to see this morning that there are two errors people make when trying to understand the relationship of the law of God to the grace of God. The relationship of the love of Jesus and the commandments of Jesus. The first error we see this morning is the one that the religious leaders of Jesus' day made, and that is that by strict obedience to the law, we can please God and we can gain God's approval. So, error number one, I can earn God's acceptance through obedience to the law. So, to repeat, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, we talked about this last week, the way the religious leaders understood the law of God and we can think of that like the Ten Commandments and all the other commands and commandments in the Old Testament law. The way they understood it is that you could live out these commands. And if you can obey them, God will approve of you and he will accept you because of your personal obedience to his law. So these scribes 
which are also known as the teachers of the law, these scribes and Pharisees, their entire life was dedicated to obeying the law. They studied it. They memorized it. They even made new laws of their own to keep them from accidentally breaking the original laws. Like, um, I'm just making this up as an example. Like, if the law said you cannot step on this rug, they would create another rule that you can't even enter this room. Because if you don't enter this room, then there's no way you're going to step on the rug, right? So they did this over and over and over again before Jesus came. One of the Ten Commandments is to observe the Sabbath, to give God one day of your week and to rest in Him. So they asked, well, if we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, what is work? And so they added to the law man-made rules on what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath to create a hedge of protection around God's law. So if you don't break our man-made rules, you don't get anywhere close to breaking God's law, right? But in that, the heart of God was actually lost. And part of the reason they took issue with Jesus and made these accusations against him is because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And what, what, what was their reaction? They got angry with him. Healing is work. Work is forbidden. Jesus worked. Right? Never mind that a woman was made well physically and restored to a place of inclusion and dignity in the community. That's what happened. And in their meticulous attempt to obey the Sabbath, they missed the whole point. The Sabbath was always meant to be a time where people are restored by God, which is actually what Jesus was doing when he healed. From the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus says, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So is it wrong to study the Scriptures? No, it's nothing but right. But the Scriptures point us to Jesus. And so in our Scripture study, if we are not pointed to Jesus and faith in Him alone as our means of salvation, then we're, then we're missing the point. And Jesus was standing right in front of them. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The problem with the religious leader's view of the law is that it idolizes the law it legalizes God. And in their attempt to earn God's acceptance, if you make it all about obeying the law, you actually miss God in the process. Like they missed Jesus when he stood right in front of them. The law will become God, if that's your approach. We can still see that at work today with strict religious rules. Maybe you grew up in a denomination or church where it was so strict and it seemed like God's acceptance of you was based on obeying a certain set of rules. When I was first saved by faith in Jesus Christ, Lucy and I started attending the church of the pastor that officiated our wedding. He, he came by a few months later and shared the gospel with me and like I didn't know I needed anything or wanted anything, but he shared the gospel man, I wanted that like nothing I've ever wanted before in my life when I got saved. And so, naturally, we started attending the church where he pastored. And when we went there, 
Um, he and the worship leader were really nice. They were authentically nice and happy to see me and looked me in the eye and greeted me. But not a single other person in the congregation acknowledged my presence. Um, it, it was a conservative congregation. I had long hair. I wasn't in a suit. The third Sunday, I walked in, in the back of the sanctuary and I sat down in a pew right off the center aisle. And there was at least 10 feet between me and, and this woman. And she looked over at me and she put her hand on her Bible and her purse and scooted the last foot and a half to the other end of the pew. Um, wow. That's just awesome. Right? Not so much. Um, I thought, I'm not up for that. You know? And I started thinking, nobody's acknowledged my presence besides the pastor and the worship leader until she did. And that's how she acknowledged my presence. And so I thought, I can't do this anymore. I'm not, I'm not up for that. Um, and so I quit going to church. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have the spiritual maturity to think it through and, and find another church that was more loving. I just quit going to church. And, and for over, it took me over two years to, to attend church again and to make any progress whatsoever in my infant Christian faith. I mean, it almost shipwrecked my faith for good. Um, but praise the Lord, he loves me and he's for me and, and he sought me out and got me back. Praise the Lord. Um, what I was told in their actions was that there were rules and I wasn't following them and my kind are not welcome. That's what their actions told. So here's the problem with that view of the law. You will never know if you're dressed nice enough, if you're singing loud enough or on key enough, or if you've been sincere enough and you actually end up living your life in fear of God. Your obedience will be rooted in fear of God, not love for Him. And there's such a difference in that. One comedian said, I grew up with a God is watching you, so you better not make him mad mentality. I felt guilty for feeling good. I felt guilty for feeling bad. I felt guilty for feeling nothing. Right? This type of, of legalism um, can happen even outside of religion. And it is just as devastating there as well. Some years back, a study was published by the World Economic Forum on Millennials and Perfectionism. And anyone born between 1981 and 1996 is considered a millennial. The author states, millennials are under immense pressure from always being sifted, sorted, ranked, and swiped. Like you get swiped out of a, a smartphone screen, right? In exams, job performance assessments, on social media where they feel compelled to curate a picture of a perfect life. As a result, they are subject to depression, anxiety, anorexia, suicide, and other self-destructive behavior. The author goes on, I am a millennial, and I know this all too well. The pressure to be perfect is crushing. The Pharisees and teachers of the law demanded religious perfection. And Jesus says that it was like slavery. But he says there is grace.
for the crust, to those who have been brokenhearted by religious moralism, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So, error number one is using the law to attain God's acceptance. This is the way of Pharisees, of religious legalists, and the way of some parts of modern culture. Performance first, then acceptance. Error number two, because of God's grace, the law is unnecessary. But, so there's another error. This was the error of the elderly man that stopped me after that Sunday evening service. This is the error that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were afraid of. If you tell people they are saved by grace alone, they think they can live however they want. Jesus admits this would not be a good thing. To think that God's grace gives us free reign to ignore his commands? Um, no. Now, I've had a number of conversations over the years with somebody who has not been living a life of Christian faith, and then they're suddenly confronted with the brevity of life or the, the brevity of good health um, through a loved one's death or a bad diagnosis of their own or, or some drastic change in their circumstances. I've sat on pickup tailgates. I've been in the break room at work and talked with someone in crisis who's thinking about Christianity and thinking about them being right with God and talking about death and about heaven and hell being asked about my faith, about Christianity. And then at, at some point, there's some form of this statement. I don't think God could ever forgive me for all that I've done. If there is a heaven, God would never let me into it. A pretty common thought. To which I respond, yes, he can, and yes, he will. And then I use my go-to phrase, which you've heard many times before. What do you think God thinks when he thinks of you? He loves you. He loves you. He sent his son to be the sacrifice to take away everything that separates you from him. What do you think God thinks when he thinks of you? He loves you. Nobody. Nobody. And people need to know this because they think it's true about you and not about them. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. That's right. Nobody. Heaven is not a place where good people go. It's not a place for people who follow the rules well enough. Heaven is a place for those who realize they were never good enough and never going to be good enough to enter God's presence on their own. But they trusted that Jesus could and would receive them in if they would follow him. And in that point, in a conversation with somebody, this is a good place to tell them the story from Scripture of the man who hung on the cross next to Jesus. Yeah. It's in Luke chapter 23. The man's a convicted criminal. He's sentenced to death, deserving of execution according to the law of the land of that day. He's hanging there, bleeding out. He's going to die. He's not going to get off the cross and do anything for anybody, including Jesus. And he turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He hadn't done anything. He couldn't do anything. 
And Jesus tells him, truly, I'm telling you, today you will be with me in paradise. Convicted criminal. A life of sin and crime. And he trusts in Jesus with literally some of his final breaths. And he enters the kingdom of heaven. Glory. Many times, the next objection I hear is, okay, so God can forgive all I've done, but I'll just disappoint him again. I know myself. It's going to be hard for me to change. Yeah, it is. But you're not alone now. You're not doing it on your own strength now. And people really wonder, will God give up on me? Dare I, dare I hope so high to be saved and be forgiven? Will God give up? God's forgiveness is unlimited. You will never out God's love for you. Ever. People, a few of them, have then looked at me like they've discovered a loophole. I can become a Christian today and still keep doing whatever I want. And I'll still go to heaven. Here's what Jesus says in that response. Back in our passage today, Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You can come to faith in Jesus and still choose to walk in disobedience, but you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven according to the words of Christ. And you will forfeit what Jesus wants for you in this life by living like that. I want you to ask yourself, you don't know me or anybody else an answer, but be honest with yourself before God. Is that what you want out of life? Because life goes by. Is that what you want out of life? And if you're looking for a loophole to obey Jesus, are you sure you've embraced him in the first place? A little over two years after that, that wonderful Sunday morning when that lady scooted another foot and a half away from me because from 10 feet I was going to steal her Bible and purge and whatever. Um, over two years after that, I, I had a particularly bad night the night before. I made some horrible decisions, got beat up by a cop who did that as an alternative to arresting me. So it's the best woman I ever took because I didn't get arrested and get in trouble for military and all that stuff. Um, and the next morning, I'm standing in front of the mirror to shave, and, and God showed up. I didn't literally see him. I didn't literally hear him. But, man, he was speaking so clearly to me that I knew exactly what God was communicating to me. He was like, Rick, I've been walking with you this far, but now you're going like that. And I will never not accept you back. And I remember God saying that to me. I will never not accept you back. The longer you continue like this, the farther you get away from me. And here's what's going to happen, son. Somewhere down the road, you're going to knock me back again. You're going to be lost forever. So what is it? Do you want to be with me or not? Man, again, like when I was first saved, with everything in me, I wanted all of Jesus. And that changed my life. The, the, the sins and the addictions that had held me were released. And I've never been subject to them again. October 21st, I want to be clean and sober 35 years by faith in Christ for his glory. Um, life changed me there. And, and I've been filled with the Spirit since then. And, and I'm not condemned by the law. I'm not powerless against the power of sin. The Spirit of Christ lives in me now. And I'm not alone. 
and, and I'm not perfect, but Christ in me is perfect. And so I don't get caught up in the stuff I used to get caught up in. I recognize my sin a lot quicker now, and I repent a lot quicker now. And, and my life is different. You can come to faith in Jesus and still choose to walk in disobedience, but you will be released to the kingdom of heaven in the forefront of what Jesus wants for you. Is that what you want out of life? That day in my life, I was confronted by God himself. Is that what you want out of life? And I did not want that out of life. Um, and I know for sure, at least from that day, that I have embraced Jesus and lived by faith in him. And what I cannot do on my own, and what I proved the night before that day that I can't ever do on my own, Christ has done in me, and for me, and with me, every day, ever since. That's how we obey the law, by loving and worshiping and serving Jesus Christ, because in him the law is fulfilled. So, time for kingdom ethics. Because I am in Christ, I desire to obey. So there are the two errors, trying to earn your acceptance into God's kingdom, or thinking that accepting God's grace is a license to disobey. Now, how does Jesus understand the law and its place in the Christian life? Our passage today, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember the stature and the respect Pharisees and the teachers of the law had back then. And Jesus is saying, that's not it. You know, they, they were the, the highfalutin people. They got the best seats, got all the respect, and people moved out of the way to make came through, right? Jesus is saying, there's more to faith that saves than that. Remember at this point, Jesus has healed the sick. He's called fishermen and tax collectors to be his followers, this ragtag bunch of disciples. Then Jesus says these words in verse 20. This would have been like dropping a bomb on them. If you are not more righteous than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We think of these guys, these scribes, these teachers of the law, and the Pharisees as bad guys from what we read in passages like this in the New Testament. But to the Jewish people... The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were the most educated, the most respected religious leaders in the community. This would be like Jesus today saying to one of us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Right? What's he saying here? Is he saying we have to be perfect? Because how am I going to do that? Right? No. Jesus is talking about an obedience to the commands on a whole other level than we tend to think of it. It's not just a behavioral level. Man, if I can just like read, read these rules and do them perfectly, I'm good, right? That's what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were about. Jesus is meaning on a heart level. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will go on to give six examples that start something like this. 
you have heard that it was said, and then he goes on to say, but I tell you, um, let's look at, at the first of those examples. It's in our passage today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow. Before I was a Christian, I was once asked by a Christian who was attempting to evangelize me how I was going to go to heaven. And I actually responded, well, I've never murdered anyone. You know, we can all come up with something that somebody's done and we haven't done, and so we're better than they are, so we must be going to heaven, right? And, and I remember squirming and wanting to be anywhere there. But praise the Lord for that friend who shared the gospel with me. So, I've never murdered anyone, but in this passage in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus here says, yes, you have. You all have. You've never literally murdered, but the seed of murder is in your heart. You've been angry. You've bitten at other people. You've been vengeful and envious. Jesus is not just after our external behavior. He's after our hearts. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Where we have fallen short, he's won the victory. The Bible says that when we trust in him, his life becomes credited to us. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God co-heirs with Christ. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, and I have an example that, that uh, it's not the most reverent example, but it's mine. Does anybody remember watching the Muppets on TV? You remember, you remember Muppet Man? Remember Muppet Man? This tall guy in a trench coat, right? Well, all the all the Muppets are stacked on each other's shoulders. So there's, you know, they're all on each other's shoulders. And, and with all of them stacked up like that, they're tall enough to look like a man. And, and then someone who looks like a, a man's head is sticking out the top. And they're all inside the trench coat, right? So it looks like a, a human man, you know. But it, when the trench coat opens, there's all these Muppets stacked up, right? Not the most reverent example, but we are hidden with Christ in God. God the Father looks at us, and he sees Jesus, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. We are hidden with Christ in God. And if it takes the Muppet Man for you to remember that, then praise the Lord for the Muppet When people... Look at them. They see a man. In the same way we are hidden in Christ. God the Father looks at us and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus who obeyed the law perfectly. Jesus who obeyed the law perfectly, yet he paid the penalty for disobedience to the law. He paid the penalty that we deserve. Jesus took our sins and our failures, our shame upon his shoulders and was nailed to the cross. 
cross, he went into the grave, and three days later he rose. Jesus defeated our sin. Jesus has defeated our disobedience. He bears our imperfections and gives us his imperfections. And like the woman who had an issue of blood for seven years and she touches him and she's made whole and clean and restored in dignity to a place in the community by faith in Christ, we are made clean and pure and freed from our imperfections and our sins and we are given dignity and a place of inclusion in the kingdom of God for this life and forever. Because Christ has fulfilled the law. It does not hold power over us. It's not a crushing reminder of our failure, nor is it something that we abandon. Because Jesus has fulfilled it for us. It's now something with the power of God's Spirit that we obey because we trust that Jesus knows the way to abundant life. We don't trust in the law for salvation or for acceptance, but we obey the law faith in Jesus Christ because we believe that God's ways are better than our own. After all, Jesus says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I am in Christ. Say that with me. I am in Christ. I am in Christ. Amen. So when we read the Bible, when we come across commands and we think I can never do that. Or that seems too hard. We have to remember that in Jesus, we have already obeyed the law. Now we live in with who God already says we are. So let's walk in the victory that has already been won for us by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we adore you.